Hello, this is Dennis, and welcome to episode 122 of Church and Maine. Welcome. This is episode 122 of Church in Maine, the podcast that is at the intersection of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Well, this is the last interview for 2022, and I'm ending it with one of my favorite people to interview, Andrew Donaldson. Donaldson hosts the Heard Tell podcast, and he is also a prolific writer. He writes for Young Voices and for Ordinary Times. Usually when I have him on the podcast, it's to talk about evangelicalism and uh, especially the Southern Baptists. And that's basically what we did in this episode. Um, He provides us with an update on the investigation of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, following uh, an explosive report on sexual abuse that was um, uh, released um, in the spring of this year. Um, We also talk about the move a possible move to punish congregations that choose to ordain women. Um, We didn't get to talk as long in this episode about kind of all the issues that are happening. Um, We both had uh, very busy schedules. It's a busy time of the year. Um, But that just means that we'll have him back on uh, in the new year. Uh, Just before we go to the interview, um, I do want to uh, say that after this interview concludes, I will talk about the podcast schedule for the holidays. Um, but for now, let's listen to Andrew Donaldson. Andrew, uh, it's good to have you back. And um, so I have you here for a few reasons. Um, One is to kind of get an update on what's been going on concerning um, the Southern Baptists when it comes to um, kind of the whole thing going around um, sexual abuse. And then um, also want to talk to you about this kind of movement or whatever is going on concerning. women as pastors. Um, So I guess the first thing to talk about is what's been going on with the um, kind of the fallout from uh, this summer's uh, convention and um, dealing with and trying to deal with um, abuse, especially from pastors, but other church leaders. Right. So we had a, a little bit of house cleaning with the executive committee. Um, there is a new leader of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, who by all accounts is an upright moral man, seems to be a good guy from everything I understand. Um, the bigger thing that happened is this DOJ investigation. Now, we don't know what's going on with that. That's probably going to take quite some time. We're not going to be privy to that. There's not going to be leaks. We're not going to know anything about that. So that's looming out there somewhere. Is this surprising that 
this one as far as, as high up as the Department of Justice? No, because um, the, investigation. Well, and, and that's what I was getting ready to actually say is we don't know what that investigation looks like. Are they looking at the abuse or are they looking at money? This mm. is a billion dollar organization, multinational organization. There's a lot of money moving around when you get to the executive committee level. Um, are they just looking at abuse? Are they also looking at the finances? Are they looking at the individual members of the executive committee that resigned and got out of the way? Because what happens with the DOJ investigation is you don't know what route that's going to take. So if they start looking into this, you know, you could have one, and I'm just, this is speculation. Everybody calm down. I'm just using this as an example. You could have one member of the executive committee that left during the scandal and they're looking at the scandal and they all of a sudden discover he's a tax cheat or a stockbroker fraud or whatever. And they start chasing that rabbit hole. And then the headline will be, it was like, oh, this former executive committee. And it didn't have anything to do with the abuse scandal. You don't know what that's going to take yet, but it's out there. So at some point that'll, that'll resolve itself and we'll find out what they're actually investigating. But you know, I have to temper myself and not just automatically assume they're going to be looking at just the abuse part because there's a lot of money here. There's multiple individuals that also have a lot of money involved here. There's a lot of men with a lot of power that aren't used to accountability there. We don't know what direction that's going to go. So it's just out there. Um, and then the the bigger thing from our point of view is, look, the list came out. It's public. People can look it up. The guidepost investigation was not a whitewash investigation. It was a thorough investigation. They named names. They named people. There's some really ugly stuff in that investigation. It is public. People should go read it. Um, Guidepost for folks, just to reiterate for people who don't know, Guidepost is the financial services arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, but they do have independent auditors for obvious reasons because they are a financial, you know, they do things like investment, bereavements, things like this. So this was on the up and up. They did a very thorough investigation with this Guidepost thing that was independent from the Southern Baptist Convention itself. Folks should go read it. It feels, though, like... A lot of the convention themselves and a lot of everybody else involved just kind of wants this to go away now. Now, the the national convention, the next time they meet, I'm sure the next couple of meetings, they're going to have to deal with this. Um, something else interesting has been happening, though. Uh, the last Since the last Southern Baptist Convention meeting, they call it the, the annual meeting, not a convention, but it's a convention. Um, the state conventions, not the national group, but the individuals mm-hmm. 21 different states now have done some kind of addressed formal resolution or statement or something at the state level dealing with abuse and dealing Hmm. with abusive clergy and abusive pastors and abusive church workers, these sorts of things. So local level, there's a lot of movement on this. There are 21 of the states have already, you know, done some kind of a measure that varies from, you know, outright bans to anybody involved to more, strict body, you know, background checks on nursery workers, stuff like this. There's a wide spectrum there. That's all good stuff. That all needs to be done. On the national level, though, and collectively, I think a lot of them hoping this is just going to go away now. I feel like we're halfway to two-thirds to a lot of people wanting this to go under the rug. Oh, those were bad people that did that, but they're not here now, and let's just move forward. I, You start hearing a lot of that. You start seeing a lot of that. That's my fear is you're going to get people just worn out by it. You get people that don't want to talk about it anymore. And then human nature takes over. Everybody moves on. Everybody's got bandwidth. Everybody's got attention spans. And then we don't know what happens. So DOJ's floating out there. But until that DOJ thing happens right now, it kind of feels like a lot of people are just trying to move on. 
Do you expect that the executive committee is going to put any type of procedures or anything in place or even any type of training um, that either a kind of helps prevent some of this or even for just the, 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 the typical, you know, CYA procedure um, or is this kind of, kind of just waiting this out and hoping it'll go away? Well, the executive committee of the Southern Baptist convention functions a little bit differently because this, yeah, Baptists, we're a contrary lot. <laughs> uh, we're a little hard to, man- you know, you really are herding cats whenever you try to get Baptists together to do something. Let's just be honest here. Their job, how do I phrase this? Their job is to basically distribute the money and handle the money at the national level. They don't really have direct control over these churches. And it's one mm-hmm. one important part of the scandal that both makes it different, but also kind of makes it worse. In some, This isn't the Catholic Church. This isn't where you have a real strict hierarchy that controls every level all the way down. That's not how the Southern Baptist Convention works. The executive committee, they're the CEOs that run the corporation that is the Southern Baptist Convention. So just to kind of put it in the secular terms, you know, the individual churches are franchisees. Yeah, they got the logos. Yeah, they got the branding. Yes, they get the monogram napkins and all that stuff. Yes, they send money up. But the, it's not like the executive committee can tell them what to do. That's not how that works. So training-wise, not a lot. And and let's let's be frank about training. The stuff that's in the guidepost, nobody needs training for that because everybody knew it was wrong. Mm-hmm. Let me just reiterate that. The pastors and the church workers that were abusing people, that's not trainable. That's people. Nobody knew that that wasn't okay to do, right? Nobody didn't know it wasn't okay to not report that to police. People should not know that it's not okay for a pastor to say, well, we're going to cancel this criminal activity and it's going to be okay. And we, he really super pinky promised to never do it. That's never okay. There's no amount of training that's going to fix that kind of wickedness. Okay. Now, having said that, yes, there's things, and that's what some of these church state levels have been talking about. They're going to do more training so that the people, uh, the staffs, um, the lay people, the volunteer, you know, church runs off volunteers far more than they do the paid clergy. Those are the people that make it go right. Making sure those people know how to do these things, identify these things. And then the one thing that the executive committee is going to be responsible for that came out of the God post um, and what cost a couple of them their jobs is once you know that you got, whether a pastor or a church worker or a staff member or whoever, anybody that's even tangently related to your organization, once you know that they're abusive, or that they've done anything improper, the days of them getting moved along to somewhere else is got to be over. That's got to stop. Um, frankly, that should have been criminal in the first place. I haven't seen any accountability to that level yet, but it should be. If you knowingly allow, and this is what got the Catholic Church in trouble, if you knowingly allow somebody that's abusive to take another position of power, you are now culpable for everything they did. And that's that's got to be how that goes. It has to be zero tolerance. If if you abuse somebody, you're out. Sorry. Um, we can talk forgiveness. We can talk redemption. That's fine. But you don't get a position of power in this organization ever again, nor are you ever allowed anywhere near anybody where you could possibly do this again. If you do anything other than that, you're going to be held culpable for it. Because now it's, di- it's not like we haven't had the guidepost thing. We don't have the, whatever the DOJ is doing. Now we know. They can't say they don't know again. Like they said, that, oh, well, we don't know. You're never going to get to say that again. So they better put some controls in to that level. But again, there's only so much they can do. 
the state level stuff, the local level stuff, it looks like those are moving. Is that going to get applied to all the individual churches? Is that going to get applied at the national level? I don't know. I hope it will be. We'll have to wait and see. So one of the kind of groups that are operating within all of this, um, and as you said, is it is very much like herding cats, but it's the conservative Baptist network. Um, made up of mostly uh, very arch conservatives um, in the denomination. Um, and, you know, they've all over the years have tried to run candidates that would uh, run for leadership, for president. Um, hasn't worked the last few years, but where do you, what is their role in all of this? I mean, where, what are they are they doing or thinking about or or talking about concerning this whole right. issue? And I'm, I want to be careful not broad brush them, broad brush them all because, of course, that's not true. We can talk about what their leadership does and what they've done at the annual meetings the last two years when this has really been well, last three years, but the last two years where this has really been an issue. Um, for the most part, organizationally as a group, they were against the investigations. They don't believe that abuse is an issue. They don't, they find any kind of investigation, excuse me, they feel any kind of investigation is and, and <laughs> is encroaching on the authority of the local church pastor. Now, let me slow down here for a second. These are guys who think they're fundamentalists that aren't really fundamentalists, okay? Um, I've been to the Sword of the Lord Conference. I know a fundamentalist when I see him. That's not what these guys are. They think they are. They use that terminology. They think they're ultra-conservative. They're not really, but they're not really, because those guys are also separatists, and these guys aren't separatists. They want power. They want attention. They want folks to know about them. Big difference. I mean, you could do a theology lesson on the difference between those two things. These guys want power. Now, again, at the annual meeting this year and last year, their candidates failed, um, they are still a minority. They're just a really loud minority. They're very loud online. They're very annoying to the people that are trying to do good things, like J.D. Greer, the previous uh, president. Um, they were just an absolute thorn in his side, calling him every name in the book because he was a very moderate um, guy, very good guy, uh, moral guy. The, these guys are special. They think each church is their own little fiefdom meaning male fiefdom, and I know you want to talk about the women preachers and that stuff. It'll go into that, too. They don't think anybody has a right to tell a pastor what to do in their church, period. Of course, what we just talked about when you're talking about abuse and everything else, that kind of a power structure with no accountability is a very bad thing. Even if they're sincere in that and think they're doing right, you're just opening yourself up to predators because they're going to use your arrogance against you in that way. The The conservative Baptist network guys... They want power because they think that the church has gotten too liberal again. You know, whatever your standards, again, that's a moving goalpost, whatever you want it to mean, but they think it's been too literal. They have heavily, heavily gone into the politics of the day and putting that with their um, Christian doctrine, and those two things go together. And if you separate them, then you're neither Christian nor American. They'll just flat tell you that. So this is really an interesting side shoot of a couple of different phenomena, the conservative um, Southern Baptist phenomenon, of course, conservative resurgence about 40 years ago that brought forth the modern Southern Baptist convention. The, the Trump Republican conservative MAGA stuff is mixed in there as well. You got a little bit of fundamentalist Christianity mixed in there as well. And then there's just a whole lot of old school, the way old, uh, 
Christian uh, American thought of, you know, I'm in charge and you're not, and how dare you tell me what to do? So there's a lot of different strands that these folks are putting together, and they're staying in. (laughs) The reason I was joking about the fundamentalist thing is like the first thing the fundamentalists did was they all left the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, these guys aren't leaving. They want to take it over. So that kind of tells you, you know, hey, it's not so much a principle thing as much as we're going to use our principles to get power and make everybody else think exactly like we think. That's their strand. And if you talk to them, they'll tell you everything I just said is nonsense. And I don't know what I'm talking about, but that's my read on it from a pretty, pretty informed, both historically and personal experience with these folks and folks like them. Their actions tell you exactly what they're trying to do. So them pushing these reforms, not knowing that they're in the minority, not being able to get power, they get louder and louder and more annoying. They keep threatening to leave, but they never actually leave. That's something to pay attention to. Well, why don't you just leave then? Well, because then they wouldn't get any attention. They'd just be this independent Baptist church, you know, wherever they're at, and nobody would Mm -hmm. care. That tells you a lot about what their actual goals are. So kind of let's actually talk a little bit about the – women pastors issue, um, because that was also an issue um, kind of brought up at the annual meeting. Um, There were a number of women um, from Saddleback Church, um, which is, well, I should say was, um, headed by Rick Warren out in California, uh, and they ordained a number of women to serve as pastors. Um, And there has been um, kind of a a letter that has been circulating. Um, I think it was, um, it's headed up by someone from the um, DC suburbs that is kind of concerned about women taking the title of pastor. Um, do you see that? Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I know who you're talking about. Yep. Um, so kind of what is going on kind of, can, can you share with people kind of what's the background concerning that and why is this such an issue um among the pastors sure and, how far and... back you want to go <laughs> <laughs> well um, i think maybe at least to from the baptist faith message i think 2000 was the one the the main one that yeah defined... part of the of course part of the conservative resurgence of the southern baptist convention of the of the mid well it was they started in the early age but really the mid to late 80s is when it really caught fire mm-hmm. um and they really changed how they did it. Part of those conservative things was um, very conservative theology. Uh, men only as ministers, um, among other things. They added some other stuff to it, too. You can argue about dress codes and things like that. A lot of that's fallen off. But this is this is nothing new. The Southern Baptist Convention has argued about this for 100 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go back and look in the 20s and 30s during the temperance movement. Because the temperance movement, if you remember, in the United States of America, was led by mostly women, mostly housewives and folks like this. Um, mm-hmm. They they got a taste of power in the temperance movement, and then they're like, well, why don't I have political power? Now, that rolled into getting the vote. Well, why don't I have power in my churches? And the, a lot of the mainline churches gave ground on that, and the conservative ones like the Southern Baptist Conventions did not. This is not a new issue. This has been going on a long time. Why is it coming up again all of a sudden now? Well, because we can argue about something we've all argued about for 100 years instead of talking about the abuse issue or talking about the DOJ. And and people are going to go, oh, well, that's not fair. No, I think it's completely fair because otherwise, why are we discussing it right now? With all the other issues going on, with all the problems with the Southern Baptist Convention, with um, 
church attendance and baptism, which are their two markers of growth, is, you know, are you how many is becoming members? How many people are we baptizing? Converts and people that actually are getting involved, right? With those numbers going through the floor year after year after year, despite spending more and more and more money to try to curb that, why are we talking about this? Because it's a well-hewn ditch to fight in. You know, these trenches have been there for a long time. Everybody's comfortable with it. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's a fight that is comfortable for people to fight. You're a pastor. You, you, you know, there's two or three hot button issues in your church that if you don't keep a handle on them, cause you got three or four people that it, it's, they don't like the blue carpet. They don't like my father. God bless him. I cannot take him to the Sutton Baptist church in Sutton, West Virginia, because he was on the building committee when they built the building and they didn't do the stained glass window the way he wanted it done. They, they messed the order up. He cannot stand when he goes there. He literally sits in the front pew sideways because it drives him crazy to see the stained glass window. And this is 45 years later. You know, everybody's got their one little thing, right, about their churches. This is some, even though it's a fight and a debate, it's comfortable because the Southern Baptist Convention isn't going to change it anytime new. It allows people to fight along the lines they already want to fight over as far as, and again, this is in church terms, not political terms. It's a little different. The liberal and conservative factions, they can fight. They can identify who each other are really quick along that issue. You have people that started out more traditional Southern Baptists, like, and I know he's not there anymore, but look, Saddleback is Rick Warren. Um, so those are folks that started there, left. Now they're coming back and trying to exert influence because the Southern Baptists spent a lot of money on the purpose-driven stuff over the years in the church growth movement that Rick Warren started and Heibel started in Chicago and those sorts of people. There's Again, there's a lot of strands here. But they all go back to what are we comfortable with because we can talk about this without dealing with this other thing. So there's a lot of that going on, even though it's a very old doctrinal debate. Hmm. Do you think that there's any headway or any type of thing to this whole no. move, or is it just kind of no? I mean, you'll have people, people just kind of bleeding. Yeah, you'll have people schism all form runner now. The Southern Baptist Convention, the majority of them are not going to do this because it would it it would be a full blown schism. You would lose. I don't know. I I wouldn't even hazard a number. Probably sixty percent of the churches right off the bat, if not more. Uh, you really would split the convention permanently and forever if you did this. You look. You got look when the Anglicans did it. They lost people when the when the Presbyterian USA Church did it in this. I think it was the late seventies, early eighties. They did it. They lost people. You're going to have a schism if you do that. That's the last thing they need right now. I don't see them even touching this, other than affirming what they've already believed. You'll have some of the more liberal groups probably split off over it and make a stink over it. But overall, group change. I don't see that one changing anytime soon. And again, the people that are really fussing about it. Well, if you don't like it, why aren't you leaving? So the ones that really believe it, they've already left. They're not there now, by the way. They've already left. So the ones that are coming back in and fussing about it, they're trying to change it, which, fine, I'll respect you for doing that. At least you're you know, doing something. And then the other ones, they're not going to leave because they like it the way it is. So, no, I don't see change on that front anytime soon. So where do you see the future of the SBC? Because you've talked a little bit about the fact that um, the numbers are actually trending downward. Um, uh, which is kind of reflecting probably a larger problem than just what's going on in the SBC. But, you know, what do you think is is causing some of that downturn? And what do you see as the future for the denomination? Well, to be fair to the Southern Baptist Convention, it's not just them. Church attendance, and let's stick to just America for the minute, Mm -hmm. because in the water world, the church is growing in other places. Church attendance in America is way down 
across the board, across the, you pick any denomination you want, any faith group you want, it's down. So we're not just picking on Southern Baptists here. It's just they're the largest non-Catholic religious group in America. So we're going to use them as the example. But to be fair to them, it's not just them. This is everybody. And I'll touch on that in a second. How bad is this? Um, This is from the Baptist Standard. This is their own in-house reporting. Okay, so this isn't, you know, the liberal media coming after them, okay? Let me just tell you, the average in-person weekly attendance at Southern Baptist Convention churches declined 18.75% from 4.4 million to 3.6 million in 2021 alone. Now, that has some COVID in it, so there's some blame to go on that, too. Um, There had been a 26% annual increase in baptisms, that's how, you know, converts, but they're not keeping them in the churches after that is what's happening. Mm. Now, co- let's let's give them a let's say COVID's at least half that. Let's just be generous. If you're still having an eight, nine, ten point drop in attendance year over year, you got a problem. That's not a that's that's bad. That's not good. And the Southern Baptist Convention is a shell of what it used to be. It was much much larger. What's the issues? I think it's a couple of things. Um, I would love to just go on my mega church rant right here because it would fit real neat, but I'll just bore people and they'll, they'll all roll their eyes at me. I I think the Southern Baptist Convention has the same problem a lot of other Christian denominations have in America, and especially evangelical denominations have. They're trying to balance, and they haven't figured out how to do this yet. They really haven't figured out how to be an interconnected worldwide church while still being a local church. I know that was a lot of big words. Let me explain what I mean by that. In most evangelical faith groups of all denominations, the the core thing is the local church, that group of people, whether it's 20 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, whatever. That's supposed to be the core unit, right? And then you network with other churches or whatever, and that's your denomination. And some denominations have really strict hierarchies, and some, like the Baptists, have really loose hierarchies. And then you have independent churches. I don't know that in the last 40 years, the mass media age, since the 80s when we started getting cable television, you had the televangelist stuff that got huge, but that didn't really translate to the local church any. We've had the church growth era now for the last 20, 25 years. We already talked about Rick Warren and and Hybels and these guys. That did really well in certain places, but that didn't really do a whole lot for the local churches as a whole and the denominations as a whole. The attendance are still going down. So what's happening? What's happening is, in the mass media age, the denomination, Southern Baptists are guilty of this too, by the way. They're trying to do branding, and they're trying to do internet outreach, and they're trying to do all these modern things, and they still haven't figured out how to do it in a way that affects the local churches. Because what's really happening is, with the mega churches and these things is, we know denomination-wide they're not growing. So what are they doing? Well, you end up consolidating people. You end up having a distilling of the people you already have, and you're losing everybody else. You end up making these in-groups of like-minded people, but in-groups of like-minded people have more trouble reaching out to people that aren't like them. And it's mm-hmm. not that they're not trying. They're spending millions and millions and millions of dollars trying to diversify. But when you have a certain demographic of people, because your marketing plan it's got to be to that certain demographic because that's who's got the money and that's who's mobile and that's who shows up and that's who ties and that's who you know can do things and that's who can go on mission trips. When you have to constantly coddle that one demographic, it's going to automatically start cutting down a whole lot of other people. 
and we all saw the census data that let's just call it what it is that middle class white demo is not growing. There's only so many of those. And we've got the other data of how there's a lot of people in that demographic group that are leaving the church and losing their faith and things like that. So when you're condensing a smaller and smaller amount of people, that's how those numbers start looking like that. Same time, spirituality numbers are actually kind of going up. So what's happening? These local churches are not affecting their communities the way they once did. Is that a denominational fix? I don't know. I think they could help it a little bit. Is that the individual churches kind of doing it? Is it a cultural problem in America alone? Because we see churches in other countries doing very well. Is it something culturally in America? I sure think so. I think it's a uniquely American problem. There's a lot of answers to that question. The big picture, though, is the denominations have not figured out how to be big, integrated, online, mass media denominations with branding and all the money that's involved in that and still affect in a local way, in a meaningful way, across the board, not just in certain places where their models fit. So that's a little complicated answer, but that's the best one I got for having something that I actually think about this a lot because I think it's a big problem. We need healthy denominations. We need healthy churches across the board to reach different people. I'm not just talking about spiritually. I'm talking about Southern Baptist has tremendous disaster relief programs. Mm-hmm. Um, they they do a lot of other good. Um, there's interfaith things you can do. You want healthy churches. You don't want 4 million people in America to just suddenly lose their faith and walk off. That's not good for anybody. But I, that's the problem as I see it denominationally. They, they just cannot figure out in the year of our Lord, 2022, how to still make money and do the branding part and still run a local effective church. There's not enough pastors. There's not enough leaders. There's not enough good people that are properly trained to do things. There's not enough money to go around. And it's getting pulled into the successes and everybody else is getting left out. Actually, that sounds very familiar to being coming from the the mainline Protestant angle. That sounds like a very familiar story. Um, I think that is the same problem with a lot of the mainline denominations. They're really strong on the branding part. And you need that. But they've really have not figured out how to help the local church. And I think that has been um that has been to their detriment. I think this would be a good one for some time when we got time to really dig into it. If you go back far enough, the main line and what we now call evangelicals weren't that far apart. They you know no, split they off weren't. from each other. And the tracks that those two have taken has been fascinating. Mm-hmm. Because let's just call it, you know, main lines mostly more urban, evangelical is mostly more um there's there, you know, there's pockets, but I'm just talking generally. Much more urban, much more um parochial for lack of a better term to put it, much more hierarchy involved, but also more progressive, not just um doctrinally, but progressive and just forward thinking. And then the evangelicals went off. And then in the eighties, the evangelicals were kind of the hot new thing got into the politics you have Falwell and the moral majority and all that they become a political force now all of a sudden we're the fundamentalists of the 50s 60s and 70s we're all separatists we already talked about this a little bit instead of being separatists now they're like oh we can change the country oh we got political power oh that really changed evangelicalism in america in ways that I don't think we've fully dealt with because we're two generations now from that, however you want to call your generations. We're two, three generations from that now. 
in the in the early eighties when when the moral majority first started and Reagan and all that. You know, you're talking 42, 43 years ago, my whole lifespan. I don't think we've dealt with that change where it's everything's all together all at once now. And I know some cranky Christian somewhere is going to be like, your faith invades it. Yes, I understand that. But you compartmentalize every other area of your life. You can compartmentalize this one a little bit, too. It's called adulting. This thing, like, I cannot go to church with somebody that doesn't politically agree with me. Mm -hmm. That's new in America. That. And I know the Southern Baptist got split off because of the slavery question. I'm not talking about that. That's that's an existential kind of thing. I'm talking just regular politics, just, you know, policy stuff. Who's put in a road there, you know, Democrat, Republican, this stuff. We don't have that slavery issue anymore. We have very important issues. We have some issues that are life and death. But that's not what we're breaking our churches and our families and our communities over. We're doing it over candidates. We're doing it over personalities. That that's not something that you see if you go back more than 50 years in the American churches of any stripe, mainline, otherwise. You don't see a lot of that. That's a, that's a newer thing. That's something mass media, TV has changed um, because, you know, you get to televangelists. Well, now it's the superstar pastors and the big church pastors. That had a trickle-down effect, even though we knew most of them were, you know, charlatans and whatever. People saw it. And they can't help but be influenced by, oh, well, I'll go get on TV, too. They see people like Falwell who had their own TV networks. They see people like that. Now you have, <laughs> with like this conservative Baptist network, they're all on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. You know, it's not the cable TV and televangelists of the 80s. Now every single one of these pastors have a media profile, and every single member of the congregation does. So now what happens with these Baptist conservative networks when you go to an annual meeting, it's not just them, it's all their followers at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. you have these whole networks of things where you, you know, you had followers before, they just weren't as loud. I'm not sure the local churches were built to handle stuff like this. We're going to have to change. We're going to have to change how we pastor churches. We're going to have to change how we minister to people. And we're going to change, we got to change and this brings up the debate over who shouldn't shouldn't be pastoring. We got to change what a pastor does. Because in the social media age, the idea that you're going to show up on Sunday and preach and then just go visit people in the hospital all week, that ain't going to cut it anymore. No, it's not. It's just, it's just not. You know, does a pastor have to be online 20 hours a day? No, but he's got to be aware of it. You know, he I I remember um a pastor told me a while ago, it was funny. He, he had a real moment because uh, the teenagers in their, the church I grew up in, all the teenagers sat on the front couple of rows for a couple of reasons. One is so you could see if they were paying, you know, paying attention and behaving themselves, but it was also a nice little tradition, you know, and most of them were fine. Like, Hey, I don't have to sit with my parents. I can sit with my friends. Fine. Whatever. Right. I remember a, a guy preaching and he saw the teenagers were all on their phones and he got offended because he thinks they're playing a game or something. Right. And then he found out, they're, and, they, and one of them showed, he's like, no, I was Googling what you were saying to see if it was right or not. Real time. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they teach that in seminary. You know, we got seminary discussions about, you know, Calvinism and all this other stuff. Maybe we ought to start teaching some of that. Like, hey, whatever you preach, you better make sure it's fact-checked because the kids in the pews are going to fact-check you. And if you're wrong one time, you probably lost them. 
that kind of a cultural shift or not political, just the ma- the machinations of how a church works. Are you doing social stuff? Have you changed how you do bereavements? Have you changed how you do dinners? You know, did COVID change how you do hospitality at your church? You know, because people were scared. Did you figure out a way to make the scared people, even after the mask mandates and all that change and you could have more people? Did you find a way to reach out to people again? Because there's people, you know, there's people, whatever you think of the COVID stuff, that like they're judging your church on how you acted during that crisis. And the churches didn't have a choice. The government's pushing it down on them, but the government's telling the churches, hey, you're only allowed to have this. How many funerals did I go to where it was like, you can only have 25 people in a building made for 125? I remember going to my uncle's funeral. And, you know, we had a we had a head count how many people could go. And just the rage of that, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, churches with the pews where, you know, two third to two-thirds of the pews are marked off. You're not allowed to use them. People judge their churches on how they acted during that. Did you did did the pastors and the leaderships of those churches take stock after that? And then did they go reach out to all the people that might not come back? Because people probably judged you on how you dealt with that. Did you smooth that? I'm just using that as an example. It's like, look, this is this isn't religious stuff and theological stuff so much as it is people stuff. People leadership, man management, they call it in soccer, right? This this is people stuff. And our our seminaries, and I've been there, I've studied theology for 20 years. Our seminaries do a crap job of teaching people skills. Yes, they do. And I think that's burning the American church more than anything else. You you put out all these pastors that have all this stuff in their head, and they can't talk to anybody, and they can't relate to anybody, and they don't know how to problem solve, and they don't know how to, they they don't know how to take that first, I remember my dad telling me this, and it's one of the smartest things I've ever heard in my whole life, and it took me 20 years before I understood what he said. I always wondered, he, he could, he, he's the best I've ever seen at avoiding arguments. But he's, he told me once a long time ago, he's like, when you've got somebody that's hurt or scared or they're grieving or whatever the case may be, they're just upset. You got to let them get the first shot in. Give them that first 20 seconds, first two sentences, just take it. They're going to say something stupid. It's going to be offensive. It's going to be wrong. It's going to be something that ain't your fault. Just let them, let them get it out. Then say something and then judge them on the second and third and fourth thing they say. Because if it's just a human reaction after that second or third one, they'll calm down and just be like, and you'll get to what's actually bugging them. Mm-hmm. They just keep yelling at you. You're wasting your time. How many, how many pastors you know can do that? Where guy, you just walk in and they just go off on a political tangent or whatever, and you just can they sit there for three minutes and just let them get it out, and then just nod and then just find some common ground and move on, and then get to whatever's really bugging that person. How many people forget pastors? How many human beings do you know that can do that? Very few. But that's ministry. Mm-hmm. That's ministry, not the not the preaching, not the doctrine. Not the white papers arguing some finer point of doctrine that nobody cares about outside of the seminary. That's ministry. The amount of people doing that is very, very small. But that's what you better get back to if you want to do church. All right, that's enough of that. It's your podcast. You say something. Nope. I think that that's your saying all the right words. Um, and that is important. Um, this is kind of one of those things I wish we could continue. It's... Um, been a busy time for both of us, but I did want to get you on 
to kind of get an update about where things have been going, um, especially in the Southern Baptist, but in church life in general. So I will have you back in the new year to talk a little bit more um, when we both have more time to, 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 to share some things. I'd rather talk about this in politics anyway, but you know, churches are important. Your, your, your spiritual communities are important. Whatever your faith group is, you know, even if you're not Christian, you know, our Jewish friends, our Muslim friends, whoever, you know, your, your spiritual life is important and something that gets neglected. And you, mm-hmm. have to, I, I think it's freedom of worship is one of those things we really take for granted. And if, if you're not going to talk about them in ways of meaningful ways of making them better and making the environments better for them, then a lot of this other stuff ain't going to matter. So I'm happy to talk about this stuff. Um, I think this these are more important arguments and fights than some of the silly stuff we argue and fight about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm happy to talk about church stuff. Um, you know, I just covered on my show church security. Like mm. churches do security. I had a, a guy that's an expert on mass shootings and active shootings had him on talking about churches. And I told him, I was like, I was honest with him. I was like, look, I I go to a church that has armed security. The last two churches I've attended both had armed security. Why? Because if I don't know that that's there, then I start looking at sight lines and exits and I'm not paying attention to God because I got my own issues, right? Like stuff, but like that's a real thing for people now. Am I safe at church? We don't talk about that enough. Not just, you know, the COVID stuff, am I, that, that's why I think the COVID thing is something people need to go back and talk about. It's like, that was an invasion of people's spaces that didn't normally get invaded with, am I safe here? Mm-hmm. You can laugh about it or you can politicize all you want to, but a lot of elderly people, church is their thing and they don't feel safe going to church. That's a problem. It's a major it's a big problem. problem. Um, people are worried about shootings. You know, um, I know Leader Schumer, whatever you're, he just spoke uh, to some Jewish folks in New York, and he was talking about. It. He's like, "Hey, I," and he was being honest. I think he, I think we should hear him out. He's like, "Look, I didn't think about this six, seven years ago. I think about it every time I come up here now. Look, I was in Germany. Every every synagogue in Germany has armed polzai every Friday night, Saturday. Mm-hmm. They have to, of course, with the history and stuff. You know, is that what we're getting to in America? I hope not, but maybe we are. These are things we need to talk about, not just the doctrinal and those issues, but." People ought to feel safe and defending people's freedom of worship. That's part of it. They need to be safe. They need to not be molested. They need to be safe to an extent, not that they don't have to defend their beliefs, but they should be free from harassment online and other places. We really need to focus on freedom of religion, and it's all part of it. Yeah, I think COVID did a lot about the institution of the church and, um, in some ways, I think it may have accelerated a crisis, um, and it's a crisis that I think is continuing. You know, a lot of people in my own congregation—well, not a lot of people, but but a number of people—some of them just stopped going. Um, other things, the things that we used to do, we just don't do anymore. It's just there's a lot of kind of of, of uh, churches trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and and their role in society. And I think that this is a crisis that it's not going to go away anytime soon. It's going to be a while, be around for, for several years, and we have to kind of figure out what does that mean and what does it mean to be church in this environment? And I think that that's a question that's not just a mainline question. I think it's evangelical, and I think it even goes beyond Christianity. 
Yeah, and it's look, crisis reveals. I think it <clears> revealed <throat> things about the leaderships of our churches. I'm talking real leadership. I'm not talking about can you get people to show up on Sundays because that's kind of how we talk about church leadership. How did they manage the crisis? I don't. I don't know that a lot of pastors fa- fared well. And I don't know how many of them are doing a real inventory on why they didn't do well if they didn't do well. Um, crisis, crisis reveals, and we need to do a real accounting of what we did, why we did it, what we need to change, because there'll be another crisis coming. Um, maybe not like that, where it's every single church in America all at the same. Look, you know, the pastor I had ended up retiring because the second time he got COVID, it just wore him out. He's like, mm-hmm. I can't. Physically, he was just done. He was in his early 70s. Second bout, of, second bout of COVID, he was done. You know, stuff like that. What did it do to our pastors? What did it do to the, to the you know, those six people in your church who always go visit people, they can't do that anymore because now they've retired and quit. Now what do you do? So that's all stuff that's got to be reviewed in our churches. Same with our schools, same with our government. You know, use the crisis to find out what worked, what didn't work, and what's going next because there's always going to be another crisis, brother. I would add, I think the pastors weren't, in many cases, weren't equipped for this. Um, I want to just bash yeah. it because it was, you know, but how it's rare that you had, you talked about the different denominations, mainline, all that. It affected everybody at the same time. That's a exactly. Of, that's a heck of a control group to do some, do some reflecting on mm-hmm. because everybody had to deal with it. So you can't say, well, I wasn't prepared. Well, nobody was prepared, but everybody dealt with the same thing. That's really rare in history that worldwide everybody dealt with the same thing. I think there's a lot of lessons to learn here, and we should take some time to learn them. Yep, I agree. Well, thank you again, Andrew, and we will talk more in the new year. So take care. Yes, sir, anytime. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode. Um, as I said at the beginning of um, the podcast, I'm hoping to have Andrew back soon to do a deeper dive, especially uh, looking at the problems that are facing American evangelicalism. So just a, a quick note about the podcast schedule. As I said, that this is the last interview episode, but I will be posting um, some of the videos that I've done and put those into podcast form. Uh, I've been doing some um, videos on YouTube uh, for my congregation um, that are kind of on um, issues facing both church and um, public um, kind of public life. So um, I will uh, definitely um, be be on the lookout for those. I should say um, they should be coming up hopefully in the next few days. Um, also. I'm going to be posting links to uh, recent episodes, uh, episodes probably from the summer and fall. Um, some of those, I guess, will be reposting on uh, on Church in Maine's uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Instagram pages. So um, please check them out and consider liking those pages. I will put the links to all of the social media 
in the show notes. Um, also, if you have not done so, consider subscribing to Substack. It is a great way uh, to get the podcast in your inbox kind of immediately as it goes by. So you can go to uh, churchandmain.substack.com to subscribe. Finally, just a reminder that it does take uh, time to put together such great content, uh, make it available to you. So if it is possible, consider making a donation and you can do that by going to Church and Main's other website. Um, that is at churchandmain.org. Final thing I want to say is thank you to all those who have listened, um, who have commented or left a review, um, downloaded Church in Maine throughout 2022. It means a lot to have people who are willing to follow me along this odd journey uh, through religion and public life. And I do want to uh, wish you all a very Merry Christmas. I hope that you are able to spend time with family and friends and also spend time uh, in church um, and, and worshiping in this, this holy season. And I hope that you have a wonderful new year. So that is it for this episode of Church in Maine, episode 122. My name is Dennis Sanders. I'm your host. Again, thank you so much for listening. Take care. Godspeed. I'll see you soon and have a happy 2023.